Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. So, I'm operating within some limitations this morning. One of self-imposed I want to try and get under 30 minutes because I realise that I'm consistently sitting at about 50 and I feel like that's almost an abuse of the congregation <laughs> um, okay so we're starting a new series this morning uh, and it sounds remarkably like the last series we did and that it's, it's about journey uh, so the last series we did was all about practices that sustain us on a journey and this one is just about journey uh, towards Emmanuel so we're moving into the Christmas season so as good Christians we have to talk about Jesus I guess Um, and so we're going to cover sort of working up towards Christmas like the journeys that go towards Emmanuel so the journeys of various people that work towards the Christ event uh, the incarnation Uh, so uh, we've journeyed with Barnabas Uh, We've uh, filled our knapsacks with things that will help us uh, be sustained on a journey. And now we're going to look at various people moving towards uh, Jesus. Um, And the idea is actually that we we kind of, we tend to resonate with uh, sort of these biographical uh, ways of orienting ourselves, these narrative accounts uh, of people actually working through the difficulties, the complexities, the nuances of life. Because... um, things don't readily break down into three easy steps or, or seven principles to this or that. But when we talk about lives, like working towards something, oftentimes we'll find ourselves resonating with certain aspects. Sometimes we'll find ourselves being challenged uh, by certain aspects. And this is what we kind of, we, we talked uh, a while ago about the, the, the dialogue that occurs within community and the dialogue with God. Nothing is ever a monologue. Um, even our internal monologue is often pushing back against something else that's going on inside of us. And so we can dialogue, we can use other people's narratives as a dialogue for ourselves in terms of, you know, we, we see it, we resonate with it, or we see it and we're challenged by it, or we see it and we completely disagree with it, and then we wrestle through that. So today I'm going to start with Israel's journey towards Christ, um, which is very ambitious. We decided this on Wednesday. <laughs> And so I'm going to cover the whole Old Testament in the next 25 minutes. Um, But then we're going to look at um, how the kings or the wise men uh, journeyed towards the Christ, how the shepherds journeyed towards the Christ, how Joseph journeyed towards the Christ, how Mary journeyed towards the Christ, and how Jesus himself, the Son of God, journeyed towards being incarnated. Um, and, and Steve has that metaphysical pleasure of doing that. Um, so, But also what we want to do is create space for us all as a community to reflect on our own journeys. Uh, so we had the, the community center the other week where we had um, not so much very structured questions, but more a time where we could open up a little bit. And so we want to make space for that again. And the first thing I want to say about Israel's journey towards the Christ is that um, it, it's a journey, it's an ontological journey, it's a journey of who we be, uh, deliberately very bad English, but who we be, what is our essence and how is that formed? And just while we're worshipping, um, it kind of summed it up really, that this song, So Will I. Um, so if we just look at the second half of this third chorus, um, if you gladly chose surrender, so will I. So obviously we're talking about Jesus. And implicit, explicitly, sorry, there's an imitation. So there's something that we see 
in Jesus, in God, that we imitate as Christians. You know, there's this quote that uh, Walter Brueggemann says, Israel is most Israelish when it imitates its God. We are most Christian when we imitate our Christ. Or better yet, we are most Christian when we are most Christ-like. Because we are made in that image. And it carries on, you know, so you gladly chose surrender. There's, there's an orientation of Jesus' heart that we are seeking to imitate. Um, I can see your heart eight billion different ways. Every precious one, a child you died to save. If you gave your life to love them, so will I. And I find that actually, that last statement is like paradigmatic for us as a people. If you gave your life to love, then so will I. And I, and I find that to be the, the primary calling of us as Christians. Absolutely. That it is, it's a self-giving love, and it is for the sake of love, a love defined in Jesus and by Jesus, then so will I. And so somehow, everything, even when we're talking about the practices of beholding Jesus, was to be conformed to his likeness. And so the journey of Israel, obviously, we journey physically with Israel, um, we journey uh, through time or chronologically with Israel towards Christ. But most of all, the most important thing to get out of all of this is, is it's the internal orientation of Israel that, that's the important thing. And I want to uh, read this quick quote um, out of this, this amazing book on ethics, actually. And this kind of just nails it down. So if I kind of get to the 29-minute mark and I haven't said anything, <laughs> just, just remember this. We are never enjoined in the scriptures to accomplish anything. We are asked only to be faithful as he is faithful. As his friends, we are liberated from having to prove ourselves by accomplishing great deeds. We are already accepted as intimates, yet we are not dispensed from the response characteristic of friendship to become what the other's trust would call from us. Bearing fruit is more like becoming something than doing something. Yet, the results are not only tangible, they are nourishing for others. Bearing fruit is to let ourselves become gift for others. As he did, as he is. So it's all about our being, our nature of being. And something about our relationship with Jesus, first of all, conforms our inner and calls it out of us. Jesus trusts us. Jesus is faithful to us. And that calls forth a reciprocal fidelity in us. That calls forth a reciprocal faith or faithfulness in us. And the thing is, is if it doesn't, then that's kind of like an atheist standpoint. The faithfulness of God is there for all to see, as this song says. And then either people choose to acknowledge that by the way they live, and we'd call those people Christians. Or there's people that refuse to acknowledge that by the way they live, by the way that they be. And I am going to use that awful English oftentimes. So, let's hone in on uh, Israel a bit. Israel and journey. Journey for Israel is a massive narrative point throughout the Old Testament. And it gets uh, recapitulated in the New Testament by Jesus. So, exile for Israel is a massive thing. But then the exodus, the return from exile is a huge thing that is formative in them as a people. This is, this is the paradigmatic thing about Israel is the Exodus narrative. So they're under oppression and they're delivered by God. And this is what forms them as a people. And it gets, uh, it gets revisited with Babylon 
and they get brought back out of Babylon, back into Israel. So that's the, the narratives around um, Zechariah, Haggai, and all of that. Um, so journey is, is essential to knowing what the nation of Israel is about. All of the, all of the major um, figures of Israel are all journeying people. They're all pilgrims. They're all wanderers. They're shepherds. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. These are all people that are on the move. And to understand the story of God is to understand that there are people on the move in the companionship of their God. So if you want to turn to Hebrews, and this kind of just kind of sums it up a little bit. So Hebrews 11, uh, verse 13, it says this. So we've, we've had kind of a little bit of a list of, of the Hall of Fame, the Faith Hall of Fame, I guess you want to call it. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things they were promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking to a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. So they, they never got to where they were going to, essentially. They were looking for this promise. They weren't looking for a physical geographic plot of land. No matter how much um, kind of modern evangelical Christianity wants to, to go on about the nation state of Israel, that is not what they were looking for. They were looking for a city whose creator and maker was God. So it's not so much a physical location as a place or a way of being in the world. Exile, rescue and return. These are reoccurring refrains for Israel. The idea of being called by a covenanting God, a God in relationship, and being rescued by that God, his faithfulness and his fidelity to his covenant people, and being granted a new possibility. New possibility is always hope. So this is what shapes them. They know that their God is faithful because he is their deliverer. The faithfulness of God is borne out by his deliverance, and we see this in Jesus. Jesus is you know, our saviour. How do we know that God is faithful to us? Because he loves us, because he sent his only born son. Yet even while we were still sinners, he died on our behalf. And he created new possibility for us. And so Israel knew God in this specific way. They forgot it a lot. But this is how they understood God to be. They were always moving forward towards this promise. The physical journey itself of moving out of Egypt into the promised land was formative because they learnt what their God was like in the wilderness. They learnt that where there was no provision, he was a God who would provide. And they knew his faithfulness. And this is a really important thing that the faithfulness of God, the fidelity of God is a really important thing that we, we've we kind of made it to be different things. When we talk about faith in the New Testament, we talk about it as in a, a believism. You know, adhere to the right statements... Confess those things, if, if you want. But actually, it's more to do with the faithfulness, which requires not so much a recounting of statements, but a living yeah. over a period of time yeah, in fidelity towards those things, those truths. And this is what Israel uh, discovers about their God. And this is the important thing now. This is what I really want to get across. The nation of Israel was in Egypt. Okay, Pharaoh 
is kind of um, an archetypal character that you see again and again. So you see him in Nebuchadnezzar, you see him in all sorts of kings and powers. And he is the essence of dominion, domination, uh, coercion, exploitation. And, and God rescued them from out of that to be a particular people. Now this is really important. God rescued them to be not like that, but to be different. And so he shows his people what he is like. And he is not like Pharaoh. And he enjoins his people to not be like Pharaoh. Why did it take 40 years for Israel to get out of Egypt when it could have taken out a night? It's because God was forming something in them so they wouldn't recreate Egypt when they got to somewhere else. Because when they behold a power acting in a certain way and thinking, you know, this is, this is the way the world works... God wanted them to know that that's not the only way the world works. And this is super relevant even now. The way of dominant coercion and exploitative use of power is not the way the world has to work. And throughout history for Israel, God was always a counter-narrative to that narrative of the way power was used. So the way of accumulation... Okay, so they built their storehouses. And the problem is, is we tend to valorise all our heroes in the Old Testament. So we think of Joseph and we think, yeah, Joseph was an amazing man. But actually, he built a system that meant that everybody lost their land to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was enabled to accumulate all power, all wealth, and all sustenance and resource to himself. Okay, and that's what Israel needed to be delivered from. We see that with the Romans, so this is Jesus' time. That the idea was, was that they dominate by violence and force and coerce subject nations to work for them, to be slaves for them. And God, again, promises to deliver people from that. And so when Israel goes out of Egypt, they go out to worship their God. And God reveals what he is like. Now, if we read through, I know it's really boring, but books like Deuteronomy... What you find there is a God that is absolutely countercultural, And so bear this in mind, that God rescues the people to be a peculiar people, to be different. The journey out of Egypt was not only a physical journey, it was educational for them, it was ethical, it was political, and it was ontological, it was to do with their being. And it formed their very nature of being. And so we think of the law, and we characterise it as law, and I wonder if that law... So what we get in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. I wonder if it is more teaching them to have a different heart inside themselves, and I will uncover this a little bit, rather than a forensic legal code. So it's teaching them how to be different. But the problem is, is we don't know what the culture was to understand how different and radical it is. And while they were moving, while they were on this journey, they learnt peculiar practices to be a peculiar people. I'll keep using this word peculiar because God calls Israel his peculiar treasure. These guys were weird. Israel was not set apart to be exclusive. This is what we think of when we talk about Israel being a holy nation. We talk about holiness being called, the called out ones, literally, right? But maybe it wasn't to be an exclusive club, but it was to be different. And you can't be different if you're immersed in exactly what you're being called out from. A people called to reflect the nature of their God. 
a God of relationship and dialogue, a God of fidelity and deliverance. This is how they knew God. And in the law, there's all these really strange things which actually undermine the very idea of becoming a nation-state. So they're told that they're not allowed to accumulate wealth. So there can be no kind of economic system that works sufficiently by gathering things to ourselves, like having salaries and things like that. They were told that they cannot exploit people. So they cannot forcibly put people to work for them. They were told that they could not have the weapons of warfare. It sounds really stupid when you look back, but it says, uh, God says to them in, um, in the law, he says, do not have chariots and do not get horses. Can you imagine in the world today, if a nation, take the UK for example, if we suddenly decided to say, we're not going to have tanks, we're not going to have warplanes, we're not going to have um, navy ships, we're not going to have the Trident submarines as a nuclear deterrent. Can you actually imagine that happening? It'd be international suicide almost, wouldn't it? You're kind of inviting people to invade you. But this is what God said. Because they already knew the deliverance of God. Why do you need a standing army if you have a God that's called you out of Egypt and the refrain that is in your worship, the f- refrain that you keep singing, the poetry of your nation, is that the horse and rider has been cast into the sea. God was undoing the nation building of all the dominant nations around them. God was calling them to be a peculiar people. This was the journey they were on. They were called to be set apart and different and right at the heart of the nation, he was building a different orientation to life. You see how Pharaoh does things? That's not the way that we should be doing things. You see the way that Darius, the Persian, does things? That's not the way we do things. You see the way Nebuchadnezzar does things? That's not the way we do things. And it says in the Lord, just don't do it like that. And because we valorise our Old Testament heroes, like Solomon... Uh, 1 Chronicles uh, 9 says that he bought horses and chariots and he had military towns. 1 Corinthians 11 says that he had forced labour to build his temple. Who is Solomon being like? He's being like Pharaoh and not the child of God. What happens to Solomon's kingdom? It gets destroyed and torn in two. Because as soon as you start becoming like the other nations, you become fair game for the other nations. As soon as we start to play culture at its own game, we become immersed in culture. We become overrun and overtaken by that culture. God was asking his people to be on a journey towards the Christ, to be a peculiar people, to have a different orientation in life, to demonstrate and be an example of a different orientation. Why? Because they were supposed to be a blessing, to be a blessing to the nations. They weren't supposed to be a nation. They were always supposed to be immersed in the nation. So we have these metaphors in the New Testament like yeast. 
If we had a loaf of bread, try separating the yeast out of that. You physically can't. The Levites, the way the actual nation of Israel was organised in, in its tribes, the Levites had nothing. They were meant to be scattered amongst the tribes, symbolic of God's people being scattered amongst all the other nations. In Deuteronomy particularly, um, they are a nation instructed to be hospitable, forgiving and generous. Now we think these are kind of lovely, quaint qualities. But bear in mind, in a world, even now, of deep exclusion. A world that is marked deeply by rampant nationalism and national exceptionalism. You know, so you only have to look at, say, like a sporting event. And it's a bit of a, a, bit of a twee example, but it's kind of like... We are better than you. We will demonstrate our prowess against you, over and above you, and then we take it to um, maybe Donald Trump's Twitter, talking about the little rocket man of North Korea. This national exceptionalism. And then we think about how we, how we uh, talk about immigrants or refugees. And we're worried about they will take our jobs. And we, we start to demarcate what makes us a nation, we start to decide our cultural practices that people should take on board, that we should force these things upon. So in, in, in a world, then and now, that is deeply uh, marked by its inhospitable... On that word, God was asking them to be hospitable. In a world marked by a deep, deep memory of debt, whether that be financial or uh, just a, ca- a list of things, r- wrongdoings against you. I can't barely, I can barely talk. <laughs> God was asking them to be a nation of forgiveness. And I'll example these as well. In a world that exists on the basis of exploitation and accumulation, he was asking them to be a people of generosity. So think about how Egypt was run. It was run on the back of slaves. How did these great pyramids get built? On the back of slaves. When a pharaoh freaks out in Exodus 2, I think he is. You know, he is a man that has everything, and yet he is anxious about everything. They're going to rise up. They're going to overtake these Israelites. We'll overtake the nation. So my, my, my uh, instinct is to exploit them even more because out of my deep anxiety to protect what I already have I will exploit people even more I will employ my power, my dominion to exploit people even more and so in Deuteronomy um, if you want to turn there actually these are really insightful texts and remember this is a journey not so much about what we do but what our heart orientation is so Deuteronomy 15, uh, verse 7, this is just an example. Like from about um, Deuteronomy 12 all the way through to Deuteronomy 24, just think, if you read this as a law, just think of how amazing and countercultural this would actually be. So just a sample. So throughout, shot throughout the Old Testament, there's this refrain of widow, orphan, and alien. So these are people that cannot protect themselves. These are people that are vulnerable and open towards exploitation. These are the people that will be exploited. So even now, in our society, 
if we want to talk about exploitation, you think about the alien, the immigrant, the refugee, who gets exploited, who gets, to force, who gets forced to work for like less than a living wage. Or we think about how we as a nation, in our accumulation, you know, where do our clothes come from? How much are those people being paid to make my clothes, my trainers, our footballs that, you know, get sold for 120 quid? Some poor kid in, in, in the Philippines, like, stitching, like, 200 of them a day. And yet, shot through uh, Deuteronomy is this idea of looking after the widow, the orphan, and the alien. This, this idea of um, a, a generosity of spirit, a hospitality towards the alien, looking after... So uh, Deuteronomy 15, uh, verse 7. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God has given you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbour this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year of cancelling debt is near, so that you will show ill will towards the needy amongst your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. So, I mean, this is just huge. Inbuilt into their legal code is the idea of generosity. If there is anybody in any city in the whole of the land that I, your God, have given you, so God is framing it like this, I was generous towards you. This is all gift. You don't own this. So if anybody is needy, be like me and be generous towards them. And don't figure out ways of trying to get around it as if it's a legal statute, because it's in your heart. That's the heart orientation I want you to have. This is built into their legal code. Can you imagine this nation with it in their legal codes that the banks could not exploit people? That when people are drawing on their credit, they cannot give them more and more credit at an exorbitant rate of interest but instead have something inbuilt into the system saying well every seven years don't worry about it because this is all gift this is all gift the, the breath you breathe is gift and therefore you have it in yourself to be like me I gave you the breath I gave you the land I gave you the resource and therefore have a heart like mine yeah. and be generous. Um, Deuteronomy 24. This is some of my favourite stuff. When you are harvesting your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow, so that Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, we all know that's a fun time, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow. When you harvest your grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. What sort of business would run? It's just like, you know, like, don't take all the profit you can. From, from this transaction but actually just give some of that away you know and now actually business are becoming more ethical and, and, and doing charitable deeds but they get tax rebates and stuff like that anyway um, do not 
take everything for yourself. But set some aside for those people that cannot provide for themselves. Why do you do this? Because you were in the same situation. You were exploited, you were vulnerable, and you had no recourse. But I still delivered you. Therefore, have this heart in you. So again, this is a journey, not so much a physical journey or even a political journey. It is those things, but it's a journey of the heart. Of Who are you going to be as a people? Don't be like this. Instead, be like me. It's all about imitation. A massive theme shot through the first five books of the Bible is Jubilee. The idea of cancelling of debts. An economic system in this world would not work. It would actually collapse if we did this. And yet, this is how the nation of Israel is to work. In, 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 in Deuteronomy 15, like I've already read it, it says, do not try and get around it and still try and keep some profit. Cancel the debts, return the land. And all of these things exist to stop there being a permanent underclass, a permanently exploited class of citizen in a land that could be permanently put upon by those with power. And obviously, um, Israel doesn't do particularly well at this. So when we get to the prophets, what you know, we looked at it uh, probably two years ago, Isaiah 58. God is saying, look, I don't care so much about your religious practices. You can sing that, God, you are wonderful, you are great, you are, you know, you are our deliverer, you do brilliant things. <coughs> I don't want to hear that from you unless you are being faithful to that God. Mm. Be faithful to me by learning that if I gave you things, if I was generous, if I delivered you, then you have to be like that. Also, I don't care for your songs. I don't care about you sacrificing bulls and saying how wonderful I am for giving you a nation because you are being unfaithful to me you might say the right things but the way you live and the way you be is unfaithful because Israel became like the other nations they were absorbed by the other nations over and over again they were always moving towards Jesus the imitation of God the being like God the enfleshment of God's heart And this is the thing. The important thing about Jesus is to remember that he is not the destination. He's the way. He's not the place where we get to. Oh, Jesus, you are Lord. I confess you are Lord. I'm done. I'm in. I've got my ticket to heaven. I'm in. Jesus is not the destination. He's the way of being in this world. That's why he says, I am the way. You know, if we wanted it to be clear. Jesus exemplified this God that we've been talking about in the Old Testament. Sometimes we have this thing where uh, we think the God of the Old Testament is a little bit different to the God of the New Testament. It's a little bit weird, a little bit sketchy. Why doesn't he like people wearing clothes with two different sorts of fabric in? Not down with that. You know, shellfish. Seriously, God, they taste so good. But we see, actually, there's something else going on. And it's all working towards Jesus. This is the thing. It's all working towards Jesus. So if we read the Old Testament just as a book, yeah, we will have a weird God that's really picky about shellfish. But if you read it from the perspective of Jesus, it's all working towards him. It's all a journey of how we be moving towards him. And then that's the journey that the nation of Israel is on. The kingdom of God is not a destination to be arrived at. Hey, I'm in. Don't care about those people. They're out. 
you know they're they're um you know they vote the wrong way in the elections or, or their sexual orientation is wrong they're out they don't confess right they don't believe the same as me therefore they're out as if the kingdom is a destination no the kingdom is a way of living now so when jesus talks about the kingdom he says he enacts it by restoring people by including people so by being hospitable forgiving and what was the other one and generous hospitable forgiving generous there we go wow it does have three points so he would enact the kingdom and then he'd say it is present here amongst you if the kingdom was a destination just say go go there yeah. But no, he enacts it. He lives it out. Even the very notion of eternal life, and this was interesting, I think I was talking about it um, on Facebook a while ago. Even the notion of eternal life, we think that is a destination to get to. When I die, I'll go to this destination, eternal life. And we, we focus or we lean the weight of that statement on the kind of eternal, um, as if it's a period of time. But actually it's a reference to this Hebrew idea of Alam Haba, the, the life of the age to come. In, in kind of a literal translation and it's like living the life of the age to come living it out putting it on display incarnating it if we want to talk about it in that way what, what's the life of the age to come look like Where, when the lion lies down with the lamb when the children play like by the, the holes of the, the, the snake very weird statement um, what's that like what does it look like well, hey, I've got a people, God is saying, I've got a people in the earth that will try and live this way. They'll try, and I was like, you know, we tried having a nation to do that, but they kept getting it wrong. And Jesus embodied this. Jesus incarnated it. Literally, he enfleshed what this kingdom would look like. And it looked like nothing we'd ever seen because it was very peculiar. Just like the nation of Israel would have been very peculiar if they had have acted out these things that God had put it in their heart. Jesus was hospitable. He welcomed. Who didn't he welcome? He had words for everybody. Sometimes they were hard words. But he had words for everybody. He restored the unclean. Uh, he served the oppressor. He healed, you know, the centurion servant. He healed that guy. Liberating the foreigner. So he went to the Samaritans. The hated Samaritans. He went there a couple of times. He healed women and children and demon-possessed guys from over the other side of the lake who attended him at his birth these pagan guys these rich pagan guys that were like astrologers they were the ones that were at his birth these rough and ready uh, shepherds who were an underclass of society he ate with tax collectors you know in his core team he had tax collectors and he had the other end of the spectrum the, the super violent zealots Everybody was included, and everybody had a place. Paul says it like this in Galatians. There is now no longer Jew nor Greek, no longer slave nor free, there is no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ. He exampled this hospita hospitality. He embodied forgiveness. Even those who conspired against him on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. To the people that conspired to get him on the cross, to the people that physically beat and tortured him to death, he hung there and said, forgive them. Yeah. 
And the whole thing is driven by a generosity of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right, one more quote. And the thing is this, it's all about the imitation. We're not called to journey to some abstract destination of holiness. If we can just surround ourselves by enough Christians, then we will have a force, of, a weight of numbers that we could make a real difference. Nope. If we could be like Christ, then that will make a difference in every single life that gets touched, in the way that we, we live and move and have our being on this planet. I love this. I love this. Love indiscriminately as God does. So here's a few scriptural quotes. So from Luke, this is the Sermon on the Mount, Luke 6. If you love only those who love you, what credit is that to you? But you must love your enemies and do good. Lend without expecting return. And notice that this isn't something new. This is in Deuteronomy. Lend without expecting return. You'll be sons of the Most High. As in, you will have the family resemblance. Because he himself is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be compassionate as your father is compassionate. So that was uh, Luke 6, 32-36. Or the alternative version in Matthew. Love your enemies and pray for your persecutors. Only so you can be children of your heavenly father. who makes the sun rise on the good and bad alike. He sends the rain on the honest and the dishonest. You must therefore be goodness just as your heavenly father is good. The authorised version says, Be perfect as your father is perfect. And this has been made the key of the whole Sermon on the Mount for years. Perfectionism is what preachers saw there in the promise of an accessible sinlessness. Mainstream ethicists turn it round as the proof of the sermon's intent not to be obeyed, but just to prepare men for grace by crushing them under the, the demand of attaining God-likeness. So basically it's saying, the, the phrase, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Some were saying this is like the ultimate holiness you have to be so set apart so sin free that it's demonstrable that you are whiter than white and other people would turn around and say no god was just trying to show you that you need grace because you could never attain to that sort of perfection so god wants to crush you any idea that you've got in your head that you could ever be like him he wants to smash this out of you by saying you have to be perfect just as i am perfect else you are gone both extremes are wrong because they import import a modern concept of perfection where it has no place all goodness doesn't even make the point quite clear either the, parab- the, the parallel in Matthew 5.45 and in Luke makes it clear that perfect here means indiscriminate or unconditional a quite conceivable even attainable imperative modern concept of perfection as meaning one has gone beyond finite limitations as being flawless or living up perfectly to every demand of the law or having a nature devoid of temptation or self-concern are brought into this text by those who want to use it to prove a point of their own. All such meanings distract from the simplicity of the gospel demand, which is no more and no less than because God does not discriminate, his disciples are called upon likewise not to discriminate in choosing objects of their love. 1 John 4 Everyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. The love I speak of is not our love for God, but is the love he showed us in sending his Son as the remedy for the defilement of our sins. If God thus has loved us, we in turn are bound to love one another. God himself dwells in us if we love one another. His love is brought into perfection within us. 
The journey is a journey of imitation. This is not so much about where we were heading, but how we are being. Better yet, who we are imitating. In whose likeness are we? What, what resonates when, when people look at us? The thing is, destinations of journeys tend to take care of themselves when you only have limited choices. Love will dictate where you end up. Jesus was the embodiment of self-giving love. So of course he had compassion on the crowds who were like sheep without a shepherd. Even when he was trying to get to somewhere else, he couldn't but have compassion. Of course he restored the woman with the issue of blood while he was on his way to healing Jairus' daughter because he couldn't help but restore her. The destination wasn't important, it was the way he was being on his way. For us, any destination we can conceive of is only just another place of interest on the journey we're on. Even death is not the end. We are on a journey, that much is sure. And the way we go about this journey, the way is Jesus Christ. We may consider him as the destination, but really, he is our way and we are his peculiar people. And how does this all occur? We are vitalised and literally inspired, in-breathed, indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. This is not something we have to summon up ourselves as if we could magic it from nowhere. But we are propelled ever onwards by this Spirit, the Christ journey in the Christ way, towards our ever-increasing enfleshment of the Christ. And this is why it's a dialogical journey. This is why it's always a dialogue. Because the thing is, is we are not perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect in the way of indiscriminate. We do discriminate. We have our favourites. We have the awkward moments that we just don't want to engage. We have those awkward people that we don't want to go near. We have those situations that we don't want to touch. And yet the Spirit works within us. And we know, because when we confront that thing, we're, we're like... I don't want to go there, but then there's a voice in us that says, that's okay, but also you will get there. Because the thing is, if we start recognising, if we have that voice in us that, says, that tells us we don't want to go there, then we're already halfway through the conversation. Because we already know that our hearts are being changed if we've actually spotted something. Yeah. I should go there, I could go there, but I'm not quite ready for that yet. You know, and then we pray... You know, Jesus, have mercy on me. Help me get there. Because I want a heart like yours. That is already half of the conversation done. And so to finish, uh, one of, well, my favourite text probably, uh, 2 Philippians. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love. If you've experienced any of these things, if you've experienced the deliverance of God from Egypt, then be deliverers. If you've experienced the generosity of God in the wilderness, then it is, it is up to you to be generous. You've experienced this of your God and you were called to be God's people. If you have... If you have any comfort from this love, any common sharing in the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. 
Rather, in humility, love, value others above yourself, not looking towards your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, because he was just like God, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That is the name of Jesus, that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The journey we're on, and the journey that Israel was on, was one of imitation, was one of being and I mean being in the ontological sense, of being like Jesus. Inculcating that heart within us. Therefore, if you have any experience of God's love whatsoever, endeavour to show that love. Amen.